welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, Editor-at-Large for LARB, and I'm joined by my co-host, another Editor-at-Large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to a conversation that we had with the author, Rachel Kushner, about her new book of collected essays called The Hard Crowd. Yeah, she's an L.A. author, which we're very proud of. The book is, it's a collection of essays from a range of 20 years, and it covers a real diversity of subjects. Like the first essay is about a race that she did down Baja on a on a motorcycle, which is my personal nightmare and an impossibility because I don't know how to ride a bike. And, you know, there's an appreciation of Marguerite de Ross that really inspired me to go and pick up a de Ross book. It's a, it's a great collection. It is. Yeah. And I thought that Rachel was really generous in her responses to uh, our questions. And, and we got into lots of different topics, of course, because it's a book of essays on, on a variety of topics. But, you know, I think we talked a lot about being a writer and what that means and the relationship of um, experience to writing. Because in the in the book, I think we were both like stunned, especially by the first essay, because it's so... The experience is so intense, riding on a bike over 100 miles an hour down pockmarked roads in Baja, and and Rachel gets in an accident. It's almost hard to believe that this was real, but it was, and um, then writing about it. Yeah, and uh, and the book is it's interesting that way in that it manages to balance sort of visceral experiences like that, like getting into this horrible accident on a bike with just a sort of examinations of more abstract forms like duras or poetry and appreciations of art and other things like that. So it's a wide range and the conversation is wide ranging. And I agree. She was very generous and very nice and we should listen to the show. Great. Let's do that. excited to be speaking with the writer Rachel Kushner today. Rachel, as I'm sure our listeners know, is the author of the novels Telex from Cuba, which was nominated for a National Book Award, The Flamethrowers, also nominated for a National Book Award and named one of the best books of 2013 by the New York Times Book Review, and most recently The Mars Room, winner of a 2018 Medici Prize and on the shortlist for the Man Booker Prize. She's also published a book of short stories, The Strange Case of Rachel Kay, and just this year a novella entitled The Mayor of Leipzig. In addition to her fiction, Rachel is also a dynamic and productive essayist, and she joins us to discuss her newest book, The Hard Crowd, which collects her nonfiction work published over the last two decades. The 19 pieces in The Hard Crowd exhibit the inspiring breadth of her interests and influences from subjects that have found their way into her other books, such as prison abolition, the history of the Italian left, motorcycle racing and conceptual art, to her homage to an analysis of writers such as Marguerite Duras, Cleese Respector, Dennis Johnson, and Nani Bellastrini, to more personal registers, including her time as a bartender working in the empire of the legendary concert promoter Bill Graham, her passion for vintage cars, and the people and places of her rough-edged youth in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks so much, Kate. So, Rachel, these essays are a collection and they span between the year 2000 to 2020. And I first wanted to ask you how such a disparate collection came together for you. Where did the idea for the collection start? And was there sort of one seminal essay where you were like, okay, I can see how this might fit with this? 
How did it come together? Well, I've been writing essays of different types on different subjects and of different styles, you know, more kind of very researched nonfiction reporting like that I've done for the New York Times Magazine to more freeform pieces for artists. There's a piece in the collection about my love of classic cars, which was really meant for a catalog of work by the artist Matthew Porter. As Kate mentioned, a piece on Jeff Koons and the essay that the book opens with about my experience as a young person who was very dedicated to riding, working on, racing motorcycles and immersed in the social culture of the world of motorcycles in San Francisco, the city where I'm from, and the road race that I participated in many years back, spanning the length of Baja. While I've written a lot of essays over the last two decades, I only chose about a quarter of the material that I would consider publishable or would be interested in publishing for this book. And to me, they aren't really disparate. I can see why maybe they'd be described that way, but they all have to do with things that have been essential to my life. People I've known, experiences I've had, works of art that I have attached to, even affected to. So for me, the book kind of speaks of me. And so it's disparate maybe only in the way that a person tends to be both disparate and kind of reconciled and irreconcilable all at the same time. The way that I ordered the book and decided what to include was basically under the heading of the title, The Hard Crowd. I thought of that phrase and had used it for an essay I wrote for the artist Richard Prince, who is a friend. And it comes from a Cream song called White Room that I always liked and first heard as a very young person. I remember the scene when I heard that song. I have no idea really what the usage of it in the Cream song means. At the party, she was kindest in hard crowd. But I like the sound of it. And I started to assemble pieces beginning with the piece about the motorcycle race and decided that I didn't want to group essays by subject, which seems a little arbitrary to me. You know, here are her works on art. Here's her work on film. Here's her work on the literature she's loved. And instead, it was much more personal and about the register or tone of the essay and where it ended and the kind of ellipsis, the dot, dot, dot of feeling that the reader is left with when the essay closes. I wanted to take that feeling and kind of carry it into the next essay, almost maybe like you would order songs on a record. So it goes from one to the next, you know, from the head to the tail to the head to the tail. And then I just ordered the book that way and I felt like I knew exactly what the sequence should be and which of my essays should be included. And it all needed to kind of hum under this register as I thought of it from that phrase, the hard crowd. I wonder where nonfiction fits into your writerly life, especially as a novelist who does such heavy research for her books and who uses novels kind of as a container to talk about a lot of real things, real people, real histories. I have the feeling like you're invited probably to write a lot, but is there ever a reason to write something as nonfiction as opposed to fiction? 
I feel like I've never looked at a subject and felt I had to decide as if one is sorting, oh, this goes well for fiction and this goes well for nonfiction. It's all much more intuitive, even if that's not either a rigorous or a sexy answer. I have in the past, I would say, felt that the fiction comes first and is the hardest thing that I do. It's the most difficult to control in terms of when you will finally catch the wave you're meant to catch to complete the thing, be it a novel or something shorter or part of a novel. You have to be there every day until it happens. And it's only, at least for me, the accretion of the days that come like a thunderbolt from Zeus, where you feel like you actually know what you're doing. It's an accretion of those rare days that finally makes the book, makes the novel. With nonfiction, I more or less feel like I can sit down and do it. So there aren't as many elements of it that seem outside of my control or inchoate, hard to grasp. So I had often thought of it as a sort of secondary thing that wasn't as like, it wasn't the big challenge in my life, like writing novels was. But now that I put this book together, to my own surprise, I realized that it has as much to do with me and who I am as a writer as the novels do. And I think it's because, sounds banal, but I'm really interested in the world and I face outward as a person and I always have. I look at other people, at cultures, at subcultures, at communities, at phenomenon, at history, in order to find something to do with myself. Whereas I think that there are writers who face inward more than I do. And that's perfectly fine. And it can produce brilliant work. But if I could be allowed to do something so crude as divide people into these two categories of facing outward or facing inward, I face outward. So I think that kind of disposition is reflected in both my fiction and my nonfiction. And somehow they just happen as they happen. There are things, though, that since you do ask, there are things I could write about that I sort of start to gain knowledge about because I'm interested in them while I'm writing a novel. And I probably wouldn't write a nonfiction essay about something I was working on a novel about. I'd sort of save up that knowledge and let it percolate and bubble into this more kind of mythical envelope of the world of the novel. And maybe I would feel that it could dispel a little of the magic if I wrote an essay about it while I was working on the book. It strikes me that when you're talking about control, that the first piece, which is called Girl on a Motorcycle, the first piece actually has a lot to do with control, even though it's not necessarily explicitly about that. It's about you in this race. It's an extremely dangerous race. You're part of a group of motorcyclists who are racing down the Baja Peninsula on essentially motorcycles that you've tricked out yourself. And there's not really any infrastructure to help you along the way. And you get into a massive accident and you lose control of your bike. There's also other elements of control within the story in terms of the boyfriend that you're dating at the time. And a part of it does seem like you're kind of, by working out the story of this race, kind of figuring out what kind of control you have over your life at that moment. And part of the essay feels like it's kind of about that. I essentially just gave you an interpretation of the essay. It's not really a question, I guess. 
<laughs> but it strikes me that part of the thing that you seem to be explicitly grappling with outward wise, right? It's not necessarily internal. It's external in terms of the motorcycle, the race, the boyfriend, this group of people that you're with, but you're really narrating a sense of control and what control you have. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, as you say, you've provided an analysis and I think that a psychoanalytic reading of something that a writer has done is totally legitimate and it's loud and it's not necessarily the work of the writer, him or herself, to answer to or verify that reading. I did want to just say that I love that you say there's very little infrastructure to the race. And I was wondering, does she mean the crash truck? Because that was really the only infrastructure, if you could call it that, was that Traditionally, there's a crash truck, which is just a pickup with a long trailer hitched behind it. And our crash truck was driven by a guy and two girls who were all drunk and showed up many, many hours after I crashed to pick up my bike and the other bike that had broken down that was nearby. They neglected to tie down everybody's bags and tools, which were in the back of the pickup and they bounced out of the truck and scattered down the highway all the way to Cabo San Lucas, 1100 miles south of the border below San Diego. But for people who are interested, you can read about that in the essay. But that incident and those people, I feel I, you know, that was an accident with the bags, but I write about them with tenderness, belovedly, because the people who populated that community in San Francisco, which I guess kind of revolved around some bars, zeitgeist, but also was a real enthusiast world, of people who participated in what's called the Sunday morning ride, people who really lived and breathed motorcycles and had a lot of mechanical know-how, which is something that I have admired and regarded as almost like mystical knowledge since I was quite young, a child, because my dad tinkered with vintage motorcycles and we would go to rallies and I was exposed to people who owned kind of rare stuff. To me, that essay is more a kind of homage to a world, but also just a kind of play-by-play report on a very dangerous and illegal road race and the people who participated in it and my own experience with it. I revised that essay actually quite a lot before I put it in the book. It was the first thing I ever published 20 years ago. And I, you know, hopefully have developed a lot as a writer, which isn't to say that it was a bad essay. It wasn't. It was mostly, you know, the story kind of tells itself because it's very dramatic. And a lot of the details I would not have remembered had I not, you know, written the essay when I did. And when I went to revise it, some of it seemed kind of unbelievable to me. And I thought, well, you know, I do exaggerate for a living. Is there hyperbole here? So I sent it to a few people who I'm still close with who were on that race with me and, you know, still work in the world of motorcycles, either people who race land speed vehicles on the Bonneville Salt Flats or are tech crew chiefs for Ducati teams, et cetera, like people who really know. And they verified, no, these are, you know, this is what it was. So for me, it's a historical document that captures a time that might seem unbelievable to people who hadn't participated in that time. About this other stuff with control, I really, I don't know. 
just being a real scaredy cat, I guess, you know, that essay seems unbelievable to me because I just can't imagine being brave enough to participate in that race. It's just the elements of what it consisted of are just like so terrifying and, but also seems so amazing and vivid. I think there's, there's something you don't do in this book, which is surprising, I guess, for, you know, prolific novelist writing a book of nonfiction is there's never really an essay that's about how you became a writer. We get a lot of these really intense experiences and also come more banal experiences like working for Bill Graham and, you know, being a pretty bar girl. And then, you know, the one night you saw PJ Harvey play and having a sense after, you know, she'd been playing at the concert and then went to like a more private venue and just playing and playing and the sense that you had that possibly the greatest joy of life would be to be truly good at something. And then you decide that you're going to change your life and follow that impulse. I'm just wondering a little bit of what happened after you decided that, that you might want to pursue that joy. And um, if you see any bifurcation between kind of these intense experiences, all-consuming experiences, and then having the space to write about them? Or is that some like, you know, ridiculous construct? Because there are also examples in the book of people who, you know, are writers, but they're also activists. So there's not such a divide necessarily between experience and the space to process experience. It's such a rich question that I'm sort of trying to divide it into subheadings so I don't miss anything among your observant questions. In terms of, you said, all-consuming experiences, and I was thinking, well, I mean, in a way, most experiences that can affect a person and make a lasting impact are consuming, but, sorry to quote myself, but in the title essay of the book, The Hard Crowd, I say, I think... Something like to become a writer is to have left early, no matter what time you got home. So maybe I am a person who, when younger, was interested in occupying the present tense, like totally, fully, and completely. But now I could see that there was a way in which I was, in fact, always at some remove looking at things, looking in on myself being totally and utterly and completely committed to the present tense and committed to people who were fully committed to the present tense. And it's only many years after looking back and the fact that I did become a writer that I can retroactively start to construct a theory of my own identity a little bit in order to account for why and how I became a writer So in a way, I think that this book is my version of that story, but it's done a little obliquely. And you're right, it is a sort of classic story of, you know, writers talking about why they write or how they write. And I often enjoy reading those pieces. But in a way, I'm a little hesitant to go at autobiography like that, by which I mean not just telling you a story about something I saw, I did, I felt, I was, but about how I managed to become X or Y, I'm a little hesitant about the mythologies that are involved in those kinds of pieces of writing, which is not to point to anybody else's, but just the process for oneself. Like Proust has this sort of classical division between what he calls voluntary and involuntary memory. 
And voluntary memory is the memory that you make. So it's the thing that you construct of the past that's a kind of fixed image. This is how things was. This is who I was then. This is how who I am now. These are the steps that it took me to get there. And for him, that kind of memory is sort of dead in a way, in the sense that it doesn't have the turbulence of truth, which is, you know, has ambiguous valences to it. Involuntary memory are things that you encounter that suddenly give signals or cues that open up a whole past world that you lived, that you didn't know you had access to until that thing sparked it. And I'm kind of more interested in that, if that answers the question, are these involuntary memories and like giving people glimpses of who I am, what I've been interested in. There's certain kinds of themes that come clear through the book. I can't help it, but one of them is classic cars, certain films that I love. I think that those things maybe have something to do with who and how, you know, how I became a writer. In terms of your question about like what happened after, so I you know, as I say in the book, I was a bartender for Bo Graham Presents. I worked at basically almost every live <laughs> music venue in San Francisco, not just the ones that his company managed, but like the Great American Music Hall, the Bridge, which was also called the Trocadero. It had this funny night called Bondage A Go-Go, classic 90s. So PJ Harvey played, I think, two or three nights at the Warfield, and they were like, you know, sold out shows with costume changes and huge crew and a lot of musicians on stage. And like, it was a whole like extravaganza. And she played those shows. And after the last one, she played a pretty much private concert at this tiny club called the Hotel Utah. And about, I would say, more than half the people in the room, which only fit about 40 more than half the people in that room were there to take turns sitting in on stage with her. And I left, it was light outside already when I left. And it was only when I wrote the essay that I realized that seeing her play, I thought, huh, she is really embodying something fully and completely. And it is providing her with this pure uncut stream of joy. I would like to have that kind of joy. And it isn't the same kind of joy to be witness to that sort of excellence. And it does happen to be the case that right after that, I left San Francisco. I had always wanted to move to New York City. San Francisco, with all due respect, for me is a bit provincial as a place. I think it's partly because growing up, I didn't know people who were planning on leaving, planning on like trying to make art or become writers or be filmmakers, anything like that. And it seemed like New York was the world of that. And I had moved there in, I think, 1991 after college. I had no skills. I'd been a bartender in San Francisco and I tried to get a bartending job in New York City and nobody would hire me. I had no connections. I had no money. I just pounded the pavement alone with a resume. And I was there for four months and just left utterly defeated and went home with my tail between my legs. And my friends all said, told you, it's better here anyway, even though they'd never been anywhere else. So then I applied to a, you know, one of those like poetry graduate colleges at Columbia University and was provided with very affordable housing and 
the whole, you know, loans and scholarships and the whole thing just seemed to kind of work. Like it allowed me to move to New York with something to do and some money in my pocket. And after that, I started working at literary magazines there, namely Grand Street, which no longer exists, but was a magazine of art and literature that was the first place where Roberto Bolaño's fiction appeared after it was translated into English. And the art editor was Walter Hobson. It was a real kind of education for me. And I think that even though I had this like mistress of fine arts thing for fiction, what really helped me become a writer was to work at that magazine and be exposed to great writing and interesting people. Let's talk a little bit about the things that have interested you as a writer. And so your novel, The Flamethrowers, it dealt with the revolutionary political movement in Italy. And a number of the essays in this book return to that and return to that moment. And many of the people that were involved in it. What drew you to that in particular, to that place in that time? I was always interested in Italy. I studied Italian as an undergraduate. I'm not great at Italian. I think I'm just not great at languages, but I can get by and I enjoy reading novels in Italian. And when I met my husband, Jason, I found out he also was interested in Italy. And for him, it stemmed from his undergraduate years, quite young as a freshman in college. He was a student of Michael Hart, who had written these books with Tony Negri. And he knew, Jason knew all about this political history, which kind of operates under the heading of autonomia of Italy in the 1970s. And now this history is more widely known. At the time, it really wasn't. Semiotext, bless them, had done, Silvera Lotringer had done this reader called, you know, the Autonomia Reader, which was going to be reprinted, but had not yet been reprinted. And at the same time that I was reading Semiotext Autonomia Reader, I was in Italy with Jason visiting friends of his who are quite involved in this conversation about the Italian left in the 70s. At the time, it was not even like polite conversation in Italy. As more conservative people refer to it as the years of lead, emphasizing the violence, it was a sort of unprocessed, unreconciled history in Italy. And I would go to bookstores like Felcinelli in Milan and look at their shelf of books on the 70s and see that there was no fiction. There was one novel by the great Nani Balestrini, two actually, one out of print but really very little else. And I started reading nonfiction things about it, like a great book by Rosanna Rosanda on one of the principal like leaders of the Red Brigades and things that he said about his involvement in the 70s, which is quite different from Autonomia because it's more Leninist and militant. But this gradation from like students in the street asking for things like a better life, access to decent housing, to armed militants planning to kidnap the heads of factories. There's a lot of gradation in the middle between that. And some people were one thing in the daytime and another thing at night. And because I had access socially through my husband to people who were actually involved in that movement, it seemed like I was duty bound to put it into fiction because I had access to the real oral history that wasn't in the books. 
You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Rachel Kushner, author of The Hard Crowd. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Jackie Wang on the line with us today. Her new collection of poetry is called The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void. It's published by Nightboat Books. And Jackie is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Jackie, what book are you going to recommend? So the book I'm going to recommend is Alice Oswald's book of poems, Nobody, A Hymn to the Sea. Um, And Alice Oswald is a poet who I've become obsessed with, I would say mostly over the last year and particularly in quarantine. I've been kind of obsessively reading about water and death and Alice Oswald is is a poet who is trained as a classicist, and um, she's also a gardener. And so classics, so Homer's The Odyssey is the text that influences this book, but she often will focus on um, minor characters in Greek texts and then writes these um, beautiful poems that really capture a very potent atmosphere. So she's someone who I think Mm. readers will find cryptic and enigmatic, um, but I find her poetry to be amazing and so powerful. Did it inspire you to go back and read the Odyssey or read it for the first time? I shouldn't make assumptions (laughs) about your experience with the Odyssey. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Honestly, I did go back to Joyce's Ulysses over the summer, not to the Odyssey, although I try to like refresh when I'm um, reading Alice Oswald, refresh myself with the classics to like get the source material in my head again. But it doesn't really read at all like mythology. It's not at all on that vibrational wavelength. It's really, she's like tuning into a different vibrational space and atmosphere by focusing on uncanny details that will slip. That sounds fantastic. Um, Jackie, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? So the title of the book is Nobody, A Hymn to the Sea. And the author is the British poet Alice Oswald. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Jackie Wang. Her new book is called The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Rachel Kushner, author of The Hard Crowd. When you're writing an essay, how do you know where to start? Especially, I get a sense, like, probably people just invite you, hey, like, Rachel, would you write about Jeff Koons? Or would you write about, you know, the years of revolt in Italy? You know, these wide open invitations. I'm curious, you know, where research fits into the process. If you always read before, if you read during, how much do you read to know that you're kind of getting a handle on it? And just, especially with things that are wide open or introductions, like to the novels of Margaret Jurass, with such a huge topic, like, how do you know where where to put yourself? 
Yeah, um, it's a great question. I mean, and not just for this interview, but um, generally for the writer and how to proceed. I think it's case by case for me to some degree. Um, like among the pieces in the book, for instance, there's a short essay about the, or it was for uh, the artist Matthew Porter who had done this series of photographs where he's got like an American muscle car midair over an urban setting and intersection, either in Los Angeles or San Francisco mostly. And when he sent me the pictures and asked if I would write something, uh, I didn't know him. He just wrote out of the blue. And a lot of times I say no to those things just because I'm, you know, we're all too busy and you start to spread yourself a little thin. But when I saw the photos and the settings, I thought, you know, this really takes me to a particular genre of car chase film in the 1970s. And I wonder if Matthew would accept an essay that's my version of rumination on those films. And he said, yeah, sure. So with that one, I just sat down and watched Gone in 60 Seconds, the original by H.B. Hallecky, uh, which is all filmed in Los Angeles, mostly Long Beach. And I did a formal reading as what I would call it, a formal reading of the film, meaning I looked at it scene by scene and I wrote things down. And I've always been interested in like the kind of written compression that can result from watching a movie. There's a scene in one of my favorite novels, Don DeLillo's Underworld, where he does what I would call a written compression of the brilliant Robert Frank film, Cocksucker Blues, about the Rolling Stones. And I had tried to do my own written compression of a film in The Flamethrowers with the great Wanda by Barbara Loden. In this case, I wanted to examine Gone in 60 Seconds, and then it sort of opened out, or rather I ended up starting with what I think about when I look at Auto Trader online and the cars I wish I could buy. Actually, I revised that essay heavily to put it in the book just because I could, um, which isn't to say that I don't like the first version of it, which appeared in an Everyman's Library edition. I was asked by Everyman's Library to write a preface. And I was honored because I loved Ross. She's one of my favorite writers. And then when I went to include a version of it in the book, I thought, actually, I, I, I want to start somewhere else. And I started with this, I think it starts with this phrase about her being a one woman shock doctrine, uh, kind of, you know, evoking Naomi Klein to talk about Marguerite Duras moving into like sites of extreme trauma and violence and then explaining or rather ruminating on my own interpretation of the script she wrote for Elan René for Hiroshima Mon Amour, which is a movie that I love and I also think sometimes people misread it a little bit. That's okay. You know, they love it too. Sometimes people see it as this great anti-war film. I think it's a lot more ambiguous than that and even slightly suspect that she's equating her trauma over having lost her lover, who was a German soldier, with the trauma of a man from Hiroshima and the utter devastation and mass death that was the result of American bombs dropped on that city. So with that one, I you know, the, the new beginning was as they say, new. But in terms of the process of writing it, that one took a long time. Um, it was a pleasure, but I reread 
a biography of Duras by Elan Vircondelet. I read another biography twice by Laura Adler that I really love. And though I don't read French, I tried to read a third biography that hasn't been translated, um, the author of which I cannot recall his name. But the three biographies kind of start to form, you know, like in stereoscope, some version of her. One is very um, solicitous of everything Duras and Durasian, and that's the Vircondelet. The Laura Adler is a little bit more distanced, you know, examines her in a slightly harsher light. So it's it required me to look at all these different things and then think about my own relationship to the work with that piece. I wanted not just to share my own ideas about why Duras is important and what I love about her work, but also deal with the biography such as it is and such as other people have narrated it. And um, she's made so many different kinds of things. And I realized that they all, like as I say in the novel, can be transferred from, from one flask to another. You know, she was a super heavy drinker. Um, but like whether she wrote a screenplay or told something orally to her son's friend that was then transcribed and made into a novel or wrote a play or wrote a novel novel, or wrote a diary, they all kind of have the same quality to them. And I was trying to figure out what that quality is. So I feel like, you know, in that uh, essay on duress and throughout the book, tone comes up um, again and again as, as such an important part of, of any writer's work. But it, it seems to me that it's one of those things that's really hard to define and it kind of floats in this ambiguous place, a little like the quality of voice that you know, it's hard to pinpoint what it, what, what it is and how one arrives at it. Um, so I just wondered if you could touch on, on tone and how, what do you think that is and how do you find it, especially in an essay? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, tone following on a question from Duras is so perfectly fitting. And I think of uh, one of her lines that is among my favorite from, I guess it's from Practicalities, but, um, I think it's also in summer 80, she says, or maybe summer 80 is when she learned this because she was in Normandy looking at the sea every day. The line is, um, there's only one thing I'm good at and that's looking at the sea. And there's so much tone in that, the declaration that you are good at something, but then that it happens to be this esoteric activity and the confidence with which he, she says it I don't know. I mean, I, I love to bathe in the tone of certain writers. Curzio Malaparte is also a writer that I love who has a, a very acerbic tone. It's pretty inimitable. I mean, there are many writers who have great tone. In terms of my own experience of like, I don't know, my own tone, when you were asking the question, I thought of the times when I've agreed to write shorter things for publication, for media outlets, newspapers, et cetera, where there's kind of a particular format that's wanted. And that's when it's not fun for me. And I realize it's because you really can't secure the travel of your tone from the thing you wrote to what they want to print. And you end up having to kind of internalize some house tone or some form, like this is the column where we do this kind of thing. And so now I say no to those things because I don't want my tone 
to put on a costume to fit into a box to go, you know, into a certain media outlet. So it's like, you know, when your tone is kind of being compromised and I'm not saying that my tone is better than what they want. It's just different. And with each novel, I would say tone is a little different. I mean, the, the principal challenge for me of the novel is anchoring, capturing, and then sustaining the tone of the narrator. And whether that person is a third person narrator or first person narrator, it really doesn't matter because once you have their tone, you're getting all the information filtering down about word choice, about syntax, about the kinds of details that you will be illuminating. And it's really powerful the way that it all kind of hums as one thing. It also is, as as much as it's powerful when it's working, it can be uh, pretty depressing when it's not. I mean, the useful thing about knowing when it's working and the painful thing about knowing when it's working is that you also know when it isn't working. So sometimes it takes me up to two years to really uh, locate and anchor the tone of a book when it's a novel. And once I've located it, things can go sort of quickly. But until that moment, it can be slow. You know, listening to you talk about Duras and her, you know, her being good at looking at the sea. Um, one of the through lines, I think, in this book and that I, I noticed in almost every piece is the presence of people who I think you often characterize as being good at living. They are good at and they're often you characterize them in relation to yourself. You know, they're, they're better than you. They live more than you. Um, and I was wondering about your relationship to people like that and how, sort of how you relate to, like, relate to them in life and also in your writing. Because I think people like that. It's maybe like, you know, the old thing about porn. You, you know it when you see it. You can recognize people like that when you meet them. They can be so difficult to capture, I think, in an essay, they can also be very difficult to even talk to or meet. And the book feels so full of them. And you seem, you do seem not only to have met them, but pursued people like that in a way. So I wonder about your relationship to people like that and to your interest in them and to your writing about them. Well, thanks for this question. When you say people like that, could you name a few just so I can get a better idea of? Yeah, David Rattray and Johnny Sher- Like these people that, seem what they're super good at is doing is is looking at the sea <laughs> um kind of like duras you know well yeah i think those are great observations that you've linked all these really different people together um i don't necessarily feel that i put myself below those people which isn't to say that i regard them as my peers either i think that i don't sort of um calibrate myself into whatever kind of calculus i'm making or in whatever kind of homage I'm trying to construct and paint a picture for the reader so that they can enjoy these people too. Um, it's, it's seldom really about me. I mean, in the title essay, The Hard Crowd, I do say about the people I grew up with in San Francisco, I put them above me in a hierarchy, but also felt I was too good for the place. So it's a kind of like, I'm saying one thing and then undercutting it by saying another. And I had very mixed feelings about being an adolescent there. And I guess in that case, a lot of the people around me were what I would 
describe as free to destroy themselves in a way that I was not free. So even if at the time I admired that freedom, I'm the one who lives to tell, which means I'm kind of the one who is the victor, which isn't to say that there's any contest at all. A lot of those people that you name are just people I admire, some of them famous, some of them not. And I think that that the quality of fame for me maybe is kind of important, but it's um, it's my own sort of rough-hewn version of what stardom is. I think that people in my life have seemed like stars to me always since I was a child. And you mentioned Johnny Sherrill, who I describe in this essay, Tramping in the Byways, about David Rattray. It was a preface to his book, How I Became One of the Invisible. And Rattray was Antonin Artaud's translator. He'd written a, a really early seminal piece, a kind of profile of Ezra Pound. And he also uh, was a friend of my father's in college. He wrote about Johnny Sherrill and was really the only person to commit Johnny Sherrill to literature. And it had a really big impact on me to read that because I knew Johnny Sherrill very well. In fact, better than David Rattray ever did in a way although in a very different way, because I was a child and David Rattray and Johnny Sherrill, you know, did a lot of like rambling around and outlaw living in the 1960s with my parents and with this poet named Alden Van Buskirk, who died quite young of a really rare blood disorder. Johnny lived until about the age 64. He was a heavy drinker. He wasn't going to live forever. He was my mother's best friend and just really a character who had held up a train when he was 17 or 18, had gone to prison for a long time, had learned in prison uh, the trade of machining. So he was a tradesman who worked as a union machinist and just very alive. Everything that he said or did was kind of poetry. And I mean, he did, he had this thing he called action poetry, best exemplified in him pissing on a Cadillac. That was an action poem. So to be exposed to people like that as a very young person maybe trained me to recognize stardom. And I guess another thing I want to add is that if it's all right, reading, so Hilton Alice has that collection, White Girls. And the first long essay in the book is about a friend of Hilton Alice. And he's only referred to by his initials. And the first time I read it, I didn't really understand that essay. And I think it's because I was asking the wrong question. Oh, who is this about? And then I reread it just a couple of years ago and I realized it's about someone who is a star to Hilton and the way that that person affected and influenced his life. And this is true. And this is how you write about the stars in your own life. So, you know, that's how I write about, try to write about people in the way that they highlight their star quality. So one of the essays um, in the collection you wrote for the New York Times Magazine, it's about um, prison abolition. And um, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I I know that your uh, novel, The Mars Room, deals with it. Um, But how did you... How did you begin thinking about prison abolition and how did you enter into the subject? 
Sure. So the Mars Room to me is a novel about California. Like I wanted to write a contemporary novel and I thought, oh, I'll write a novel about California since I live here and I grew up here. And so a book about a woman who goes to serve a life sentence in the midst of our vast, you know, site of industrial farming seemed to me as contemporary as anything. It also allowed me to think more deeply about the theme of prison, which I was exposed to not by choice, um, but by the fate of origin and destiny of some of the people I knew growing up. While I was writing that book, I did start to read things about prison abolition, namely uh, this phenomenal book by Ruth Wilson Gilmore called Golden Gulag about California. And I felt like Gilmore understands California in a way that I want to understand the world around me. It wasn't just, it wasn't about prisons themselves as much as it was about the way that our physical geography and our human geography are laid out over the epic beauty and epic proportions and length of this state. You know, the size of our economy as the world's fifth largest Um, The amount of goods coming in through the port of LA and the port of Los Angeles, our state budgets, our state revenue, the series of cycles uh, of drought and cycles of recession. And I'm sorry if this sounds a little technical or boring, but I think that these things shape life here, what it feels like, what it looks like, who is aware of and sees the granular reality of our carceral system and who by design can go without seeing that. I live one mile or less from Twin Towers. I can see it from where I'm sitting right now, my office window. Twin Towers is about half a mile from the criminal court complex, Clara Shortridge Fultz, which I understand to be the largest criminal court complex in the world. If you go down there at any time of day or night, you can see sheriff's buses shuttling back and forth between the jail and the prison. In wanting to get some of that truth into the feel of a novel, I also came to want to understand how it functions in reality in in terms, you know, for someone like a geographer, such as Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Studying her ideas and thinking about geography and politics in a way isn't really the realm of the novel. The novel is like you ruminate and you don't know and you don't have answers and you bathe in um, a moral complexity, maybe not to other people, but complex to you. Um, over the time I was writing the book, I just started to build up questions really for her. I know her a little bit. She uh, had appeared in a documentary about prison that my aunt Dee Halleck, a filmmaker, had made in the early 1990s. And also Gilmore is a reader of fiction. She'd shown up at a reading of mine and I was like, oh my God, you know, I, I want to talk to you. There are things I need to talk to you about. And finally, after spending five years writing my novel, I contacted her to talk about those things. So then she was living in Portugal. I went there to talk to her and her husband, Craig Gilmore, who's also an activist and writer. And I asked Ruthie, as she's known to her friends, questions 10 hours a day for five days, uh, which resulted in an 85,000 word transcript of 
the validity of her theories and her scholarship. It's not like when you write for the magazine, it's not like writing an op-ed piece where they just let you say your say what you think and then people can fight it out in the comments section. The editors really want to countenance and stand fully behind everything you say. And that was a very long process with them with a super happy ending. Um, it was a highly read piece. It was like they said at the time, like one of their most circulated pieces. And um, that felt great to me because I learned so much doing it. And it was so different than writing fiction and particularly different to writing my novel, The Mars Room, even as the two kind of are in some ecosystem together. It's a really interesting kind of zigzag or snake's tail in and out of, you know, the fiction and the real and just and real life events that then lead you closer to the subject of what you write about and um, a way to, to synthesize everything that you're interested in. So it seems like in that way, you know, the nonfiction work, it's clear how much it can support the fiction and vice versa. Um, it's a really great collection, Rachel, and thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Kate. Thank you so much, Medea. Thank you, Rachel. We've been speaking with Rachel Kushner. Her new book is called The Hard Crowd. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. Music